Good morning, everybody. For those that are hoping for a strategic view of what the year is to bring, I'm sorry. What we're going to do instead is just pick up um, in the old familiar surroundings of Luke. So think of this as stepping back into your comfortable slippers after you've been in your uncomfortable smart shoes for a few days. And bear with me while I tell the technology to show me some notes. So I thought we'd start with an appropriate question for this time of year. What do you call a good Samaritan in the snow? An ice person. So having established exactly what this passage is not about, <laughs> namely being nice, perhaps we should look at the Bible. So my lovely wife is going to read, and we're going to read from the J.B. Phillips translation. You'll need that. Yes. Okay, Luke 10, 25 to 27. Jesus shows the relevance of the law to actual living. Then one of the experts in the law stood up to test him and said, Master, what must I do to be sure of eternal life? What does the law say and what has your reading taught you, said Jesus? The law says you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, he replied. Luke 10, 28 to 29. Quite right, said Jesus. Do that and you will live. But the man wanting to justify himself continued, who is my neighbor? And Jesus gave him the following reply. A man was once on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell into the hand of bandits who stripped off his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead. It so happened that a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. A Levite also came on the scene and when he saw him, he too passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan traveler came along to the place where the man was lying and at the sight of him, he was touched with pity. He went across to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own mule and brought him to an inn and did what he could for him. Next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper with the words, look after him, will you? I'll pay you back whatever more you spend when I come through here on my return. Which of these three seems to have been a neighbor to the bandit's victim? The man who gave him practical sympathy, he replied. Then, you go and give the same, returned Jesus. Excellent. Thank you, my lovely. Good stuff. So today, if you hadn't realized, we're looking at the Good Samaritan. Um, it's one of those passages that uh, is well known. And I read online of a an account of a Sunday school teacher telling this story to a class of four and five-year-olds. She was making it as vivid as she could to keep the kids engaged. And at one point she asked the class, well, what would you do if you saw a person lying on the roadside, all wounded and bleeding? 
A thoughtful little girl broke the silence. I'd throw up. <laughs> so, vomiting aside, how should we react to the Good Samaritan? Well, as I say, some people think it's just about good works. You know, it just shows how we should live. You should uh, do unto others, etc., etc. But Luke very deliberately includes some context around it. So we're going to start by looking at verse 25. So this starts with the teacher of the law, or the expert in the law, asking how he can be sure of eternal life. Um, as Nicholas Perrin in his commentary put it, he actually formed the question, what shall I do to be sure? Showing that he was probably thinking about a salvation by works. Um, Eternal life is about the age to come, but it also in, uh, involves enjoying God forever. So we should love God with everything. We should stay in communion with him, and we should abide in God. <laughs> Poor Joel. Um, I, I, sorry, for the sake of those who are listening on the recording, I'm busy um, telling my son what to do on sound, which is very bad form. Um, we're also called to, to love our neighbors. And the word here for neighbor is not just the bloke who lives, lives next door, but it's more about uh, something of community, of kinship, of fellowship, and of family. It's actually a quote from Leviticus. So I thought we'd jump into Leviticus just for fun. And the actual verse is, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. So here, neighbor quite clearly refers to your people. Um, and as Milgram and his commentary put it, you could translate this as love your fellow as yourself. So love somebody like you. However, um, as we'll see later, Jesus turns that on its head. So if we look at verse 29, the lawyer looks for a loophole. Shock horror. <laughs> Who would have thought it? So, on the surface, his question looks quite innocuous. Who is my neighbor? However, I wonder if he was really asking, Who is not my neighbor so I can ignore them? And I think some of the thinking behind it might have been, Surely I don't have to care for people who are outside my clan, my tribe, those non Jews. Surely not. But Jesus lovingly puts him right. God's kingdom is bigger than our tribal boundaries like race, language, socioeconomic background, education, or whatever else floats our boat. At this point, it's important to say that the Good Samaritan only makes sense in the context of loving God. And then, out of the fullness of that love, we show care for those around. Loving your neighbor happens when you abide with God. So we're not doing good to earn salvation, but we're doing good because we've already received it and we're acting out of the security of God's love. As an aside at this point, if any act of mercy is actually a thinly disguised attempt to evangelize, which I've seen Christians do, and I've probably been guilty of it myself, people very quickly see through that and they really don't like it much. Um, we should be merciful because we feel mercy not as a way of manipulating somebody. And before we move on, this passage leads directly onto the passage about Mary and Martha, 
And without stealing anyone's thunder for next week, uh, that passage shows the importance of loving God, of abiding with him. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is bookended on either side by passages that talk about loving God and abiding in his presence. So let's move on to verses 30 to 37, the most familiar portion. And it's often difficult with a passage like this to hear anything new in it. So if you'll bear with me a moment, I thought we would take a whimsical diversion to see things from a different perspective. This is a bit of an experiment. It might work, or it might be one of those famous things we look back on and laugh. (laughs) It'll be fun trying, either way. So imagine this parable as a story for children. Are you sitting comfortably? Then I shall begin. Once upon a time, Mr. Whiskers the cat was going on a trip to see an old friend, traveling from one village to the next. Being a smart cat, he took some food and other provisions in a bag, as the trip was quite a long one and could take him all day. Unfortunately, the journey took him through some wild countryside where a gang of stoats and weasels roamed. They saw Mr. Whiskers coming along the path. Then the whole gang attacked him, stole his clothes and belongings, and left him bleeding and unconscious on the side of the path. An hour later, old Benjamin the donkey was plodding past. Because he was so old, the other animals used to go to him to hear stories and to ask for advice on how they should be living. Unfortunately, old Benjamin saw Mr. Whiskers and said to himself, hmm, I see Timmy Whiskers has been up to his old tricks, picking a fight. Serves him right. Hopefully he'll learn his lesson this time. Old Benjamin walked on without a backwards glance. A little while later, Solomon, the wise owl who taught all the local animals, was slowly flying past. He saw the cat on the side of the path and thought, hmm, I could stop and help. However, that poor cat looks like he might be carrying a nasty disease and it wouldn't be fair to the other children for me to stop, get infected and pass it on to them. The wise thing to do is to think of the greater good. And with that, he flew on congratulating himself on being so wise. Finally, a scruffy young terrier called Hamish, I was kind and didn't say Jim, (laughs) was walking along the path. He was famous around these parts, but not for being good. He was a mongrel of uncertain parentage. He was forever getting into trouble. He was rude to the older animals. He picked fights with the younger animals. He stole food from anyone he could. And it was even said he had once gone so far as to steal eggs and chicks from the birds. Hamish saw the cat, stopped, and licked his wounds clean. Then he found some moss that grew close by, wrapped that around the cat, built a litter from some branches. For the sake of this argument, by the way, Hamish has opposable thumbs. (laughs) And he carefully used it to bring the cat to a nearby animal hotel. And yes, those do exist as well. He paid for the cat to have food, warmth, and protection for the next few days. And then he told the hotel owner that he would come back and pay for anything else that was needed. So who was the neighbor? Now, to to the delight of at least some of you, 
I'm going to abandon these imperfect and rather derivative animal metaphors. And instead, we're going to look back at the passage. So in verse 30, we can think of some modern parallels. How about a homeless person? Or perhaps somebody who struggles with addiction, who's in a bad way on the side of the road. It can be safer to ignore them and to pass by. What about an illegal immigrant who's on the run, sorry, on the run from the authorities, or a refugee from some war-torn state? Under the current climate, we could actually get in trouble if we face, if we uh, offered help. But this passage is a challenge to not just play it safe. In verses 31 and 32, the priest and the Levite, they were leaders, they were in spiritual authority, and would have been expected to do the right thing. However, they were more interested in maintaining their ceremonial purity than in helping. If the man was dead, they could not touch him. And therefore, rather than run that risk, they stepped over to the other side and went on their way. Again, modern parallels to that might be perhaps we're more concerned with not being late for a church meeting than actually stopping and showing mercy to somebody. Or perhaps we use the excuse that we don't want to bring Christianity into disrepute and therefore we shouldn't be spending time with those kinds of people or messy situations. Then in verse 33, we get to the Samaritan. Now, why is this so shocking? It's difficult for us because the phrase, a good Samaritan, is in common parlance now. And in fact, we have an organization called the Samaritans, whose job it is to help people who are in dire need. Um, but at the time, that wasn't the meaning of the word. So to understand it better, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other at this time, and it had been going on for hundreds of years. We can see a parallel in the current tension between the state of Israel and Palestine today. Both sides claim to be the true inheritors of the promises to Abraham and Moses. Both sides, in consequence, regarded themselves as the rightful possessors of the land. Samaritans were seen as half-breeds by the Jews at the time. They were racially mixed, and even worse, they were religiously compromised. However, Jesus, instead of making them outcasts, made them the hero of the story. What he was saying was that our focus should not be on clever arguments about faith, like the religious scholar. For Jesus, the kingdom of God is about living life, and in particular, living a life of love for God and for our neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be. So in this parable, then, those who are most concerned with keeping every single requirement of the law that's the priests and Levites, were the very ones who are unable to fulfill the law and the requirement to love their neighbor due to worries about ceremonial cleanliness. By contrast, the Samaritan, who would have been considered unclean, was the one who actually fulfilled the law. And even more shocking to listeners at the time, Jesus tells the teacher of the law to follow the example of an unclean Samaritan. So what did the Samaritan do? Well, he acted with compassion and respectful dignity. He saw the man, he saw his need, and he did what was required. He gave practical help. He didn't preach, 
And then it appears from the passage, he just got on with his life. He didn't create some sort of weird, codependent, close relationship off the back of this crisis. He offered help, did what he could, and went on. So what are we called to do then? Well, I think it's as simple as go and show mercy or practical sympathy, as J.B. Phillips puts it. The challenge is that we must set aside our own self-preservation because it's much easier to ignore than to get involved. But getting involved is the whole point of this parable. As N.T. Wright helpfully puts it in his commentary, what is at stake then and now is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity, or whether we will see it as a call and challenge to extend that love and grace to the whole world. No church, no Christian, can remain content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the road. So this passage shows us how to experience kingdom life, or in some translations, how to be sure of eternal life. In modern Christian parlance, this tells us how we can be sure of our salvation. And I'm just going to open that Pandora's box and walk on. <laughs> so when I was reading through this and studying it, it reminded me a lot of the letter of James, where grace and works go hand in hand. And loving God should go naturally with caring for others. Practical help demonstrates the genuineness of our faith. So are we called from this passage to be modern-day hermits? Alas, rather to my disappointment, we're not. We are all part of communities where we live, where we work or study, where we exercise, the clubs we're part of, and we should look at those communities and see what we can do. So how do we apply the passage? Well, I'd like to start with a, a rather surprising question. Where is your money invested? Um, where we put our money can have a massive impact because uh, we can either choose to invest with a financial institution that, I don't know, invests in slavery, mining, and all sorts of other things that are bad for humanity and bad for the planet, or we can invest in something with a sustainable and ethical background. So if you have savings, pension, mortgage, loans, credit cards, maybe think about where they are. The second one, students or anyone considering a career change, have you considered working for a charity such as Christian Aid, Hope for Justice, International Justice Mission, Bethany Christian Trust, Women's Aid, and so on. There are many others. I just picked a few I knew of. Um, another question. Have you recently reviewed your giving? Um, giving 10% to the local church is a good guideline, but you can and maybe should also consider giving to other charities in addition to that. Um, I don't think we have any students here, so I shall skip on. But if there were any students, and for the sake of any that might be listening, um, it's easier to get into the habit of giving while you're still a student. Because, to put it bluntly, you're dealing with quite small amounts. When you get your first wage check, if you haven't got into the habit of it, it's actually quite difficult to then start giving. So that's just an aside. Um, and how about people begging on the street? Should we just walk away, avoid eye contact? Well, again, this passage suggests not. 
So I'd suggest, yes, we should be wise, um, but we should also treat them with dignity. So maybe speak to them. There's a shocker. Ask them if they'd like some food bought or a hot drink. Um, tell them about storehouse and other things like that. Um, so this all feels a bit impersonal to me. Um, so I thought we would bring it closer to home. Unfortunately, my cunning plan was to have Ian Wilson, who's part of this church, uh, talk a wee bit about his work with Bethany Christian Trust. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't know if he planned it before I told him or after, but he's not able to be here. But what we do have instead is a video that shows some of the work that's happening, particularly in Dundee. And if you want to see the full video, um, search YouTube for 40 years of Bethany Christian Trust. So if we could roll a video, please. There are so many things that could eventually trigger someone to go into homelessness. So there's a lot of addiction there's a lot of poverty, there's a lot of family breakdown, a lot of mental health problems. I think addiction's everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's Beverly Hills or Broomhouse, you know. We don't just read about it in the newspaper or whatever. It's, it's happening in our front doors, on our doorstep, you know. I think one of the big challenges for people is living in a community where all your old friends are there, all your drug dealers are living around the corner from you. It's very hard to get away from it. So if they've got places to be, that are more positive, more encouraging, that are giving them the skills that they need to move on in their life. I think that goes a long way to making a big difference in someone's life. I've been here, uh, I think about seven years now. Um, and up in uh, Mingus Hill, where we are today, we've got a partnership with the Parish Church uh, and Crossreach, where we, we run a recovery cafe called uh, Connect Cafe. You get some peels, they've not ate for two days. You know, can I get two toasties? You get soup, we'll get them They know they can come because we've got quite a lot of regulars. You know, come every week and they can catch up with other people, you know, like Ian and that, they can sort things out for them. I'm quite happy to do it, you know. We wanted it to be a place where people could come and recover from any mental health challenges or addiction, and we do it through just supporting people who come to the cafe to actually eat at the cafe and taking time with them, getting to know them and their story. My dreams as a wee girl was to grow up and play football, you know what I mean? Never wanted to grow up and be a, a drug addict, you know what I mean? And like things like that. But last year was um, a bit hard getting my life back together and that and just getting out of prison and stuff like that, you know what I mean? And, but this year I think, um, yeah, my prospects are more like I'm focused on like getting my life like back together, reaching out and seeing my daughter. It would be lovely to have this cafe running five days a week, you know. And there are projects that, um, that have the capacity to do that. It would be lovely to be able to grow and be able to have this cafe open more regularly. People need to know that there's places like this that people can come and get help. Oh, if I didn't have it, I would, miss, I would miss being around the people that I could talk to, I could share with, and I'm not judged. And 
things are like that, you know, and then I wouldn't really, like, I wouldn't have that structure. See, I would love to see something that was 24-7, you know. Recovery isn't just a, a momentary thing, it is a 24-7 thing, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, cheers, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's great when you see somebody turning a, a corner in their life, yeah. Grand. Um, hopefully that was helpful. There are obviously many other charities I could have chosen. I just chose that one because it's on our doorstep and Ian's part of the church. Um, so I'd like to conclude. We're called to blend practical care with spiritual life. I mentioned the letter of James earlier, and I'd like to read from chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What use is it, my brothers and sisters, for a person to say that they have faith if their actions do not correspond with it? Could that sort of faith save anyone's soul? If a fellow man or woman has no clothes to wear and nothing to eat, and one of you say, hmm, good luck to you, I hope you'll keep warm and find enough to eat, and yet give them nothing to meet their physical needs, what on earth is the good of that? Yet that is exactly what a bare faith without a corresponding life is like, useless and dead. If we only have faith, a person could easily challenge us by saying, you say that you have faith and I have merely good actions. Well, all you can do is to show me a faith without corresponding actions, but I can show you by my actions that I have faith as well. And just bringing it into a close with a quote attributed to Martin Luther King Jr., the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? So if the band could come up, um, and if any of what I said struck a chord, um, please do come forward and pray. I know this is difficult, um, but I also think we have to allow the word of God to speak to us. Um, so I'd like to just finish with a prayer. Holy Spirit, I pray you will speak to us now. I pray you will challenge each of us you will highlight how we can love our neighbors better and transform us in your love. Amen. Come forward for prayer. There should be plenty of time.